Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Wright, and welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on topics of interest to you and your family. Today, we are checking in with Katie Simon Holland, a member of the Washoe County School District Board of Trustees. Katie's been a frequent guest on our podcast and given us a great deal of information on the school district, and today she has more to tell us. Welcome back, Katie. Thank you, Sherry. Great to be with you, as always. Well, I don't think we're at a loss for um, for anything to talk about, Katie. It's been a crazy <laughs> few months. If we recap a bit, um, the school board had numerous meetings prior to school opening uh, with parents and teachers, and it was decided at that time that elementary school children could go back full-time or, or do long-distance learning, and middle and high school would do a hybrid in person of distance learning. Did I did I put that together in the right way, Katie? That's correct. And uh, so it actually has resulted in our operating three systems of a school district, almost like three school districts. We have one uh, that is doing full in-person learning at the elementary level. We have one that's doing hybrid learning, as you said, some days in person and then alternating days on distance learning and then full distance learning. And uh, all of those require very different skills and very different operations. Uh, it's been quite quite a challenge. Yeah, and I'm, I'm absolutely amazed by the fact that, um, that it all came together in a reasonable fashion. But let's pick each one apart just a little bit, if you don't mind, Katie, and talk about them separately. Let's talk about the, the full-time uh, elementary school. How is that going for children? I know that there's been some uh, disconnect with it because of the smoke. I mean, certainly no one predicted that, but that's been a bit of a challenge, hasn't it? Oh, it absolutely has. And uh, we really appreciate uh, the the patience of parents and families um, trying to balance giving people advance notice with incomplete information from the weather service and air quality uh, experts. So, uh, yeah, that's been a big challenge. But it's also been um, a an important opportunity for us to focus on how important distance learning is whether it's um, whether it's COVID or smoke or a snow day um, those kids who are doing distance learning uh, have to have it done right and we've all we've all learned a lot and it's getting it's getting better every day uh, I can talk about uh, when we get to that what, what are some of the things we're doing to help with that well let's let's move on then so the the in-person is going quite well, except for the times that maybe they're handicapped by some other outside uh, force, like the smoke or if there's COVID, and then they move to the distance learning. So what about the hybrid? How is that going with being in-person and then distance learning certain days of the week? Well, let me just, if I might, just back up on full in-person learning. Um, I, I was there for... First first day of school at one of the elementary schools here, uh, spent many hours and uh, just so impressed with the children and how well they are adjusting to wearing masks and staying six feet apart and being really careful about washing their hands. Um, I just I want to thank the parents and the children of the district, um, the teachers who are in school uh, by a great majority love it. They're happy to be back. I've talked to many teachers who are very happy to be back. 
Um, we obviously are, uh, you know, concerned about making sure that it's very safe. Uh, and just so folks know, we've had, so we have about 63,000 students in our district and about 8,000 employees. So we have 70,000 plus people every day that we're dealing with for hours. And we've had um, fewer than 20 cases of positive cases of COVID. What does happen with the in-person and with hybrid learning is that um, when there is a positive case and there has been contact, uh, the, the health department does the contact tracing along with our health services, and we do exclude those students or staff members who have been exposed. We also exclude staff uh, and students who are doing their self-screening and, and have some symptoms. So right now we have more than 800 uh, students that are excluded either because they self-screened and they have some symptoms and were asked to stay home uh, by the district or encouraged to stay home by the district, or they've actually been exposed. But of that of that number of 800, there's uh, probably 70% of those are are children who've had some symptoms and the parents kept them home. They're not kids who have been exposed. So uh, when you look at the numbers, the the COVID uh, issues we're having in the elementary schools are are really very very small. And um, fingers crossed, you know, fingers crossed yeah. that everybody keeps doing what they need to do to make that uh, continue. Yeah, because that's not even 1%. I know that um, we have some family friends and, of course, people that work at Access that have children that gone have gone back to school full-time in elementary, and the children were just over the moon to go back. I mean, they mm -hmm. absolutely loved it. So even with the issue of the masks and the distancing, uh, the children unanimously want to be there. Yeah, yeah. And we, we want them to be able to take advantage of in-person education. Um, we all know that distance learning is really difficult for young children. They, the attention span is hard. Um, parents uh, are worried about, you know, managing their kid when they're trying to work. Uh, so um, we're, and we also know there's a lot of research that, yes, children can contract COVID, but they don't get as seriously ill and there is much evidence that they are not transmitting uh, to adults as much as um, as might be feared. So, uh, so far, so good. And we just want to thank everybody for continuing to screen their children before they come to school, check their temperature, check them for symptoms, and then make sure they're uh, wearing a, a clean mask and washing their hands and keeping that distance. Well, here we are six or seven months later, and we know so much more than we did, say, last March, um, as far mm -hmm. as some of the issues that you're talking about that give us a sense of security and also tell us uh, where we need to put our attention. Let's talk about the distance learning because I know there's been some concerns about that. And as you said, with elementary children, it is very challenging. I'm uh, with my grandchildren right now, uh, one of which is nine years old. And I can tell you, putting them on a computer and, and keeping on, on that computer is uh, a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we've we've established uh, in the district um, through we're we're on Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, and we've established through the district um, teacher communities that are helping each other. And our 21st Century Learning Department is supporting them with lesson plans, with uh, online resources, with uh, links to videos, etc. Uh, and we have about about 3,000 of our 4,000 teachers are actively in a teacher community working with other teachers in our district for 
best uh, practices within their grade level. So uh, when we started the year, we did not have that. And that was, you know, that was a uh, mistake to not have all of that uh, ready to go when we opened. But um, but we're we're on it. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that we have lots of kids who are differently abled, and uh, they need to have much more support than distance learning. So we still have those kids who are in need of uh, direct uh, attention with a clinical aid or whatever, if they have a disability that prevents them from, you know, from being able to work with a computer. We want them to be having direct uh, in-person education with an aide and with a teacher that's trained for, for working with them. And then, of course, we have still thousands of children that lack a device or lack Wi-Fi at home. We have right. uh, purchased we have purchased thousands of Wi-Fi hotspots and have been distributing those uh, through the schools to families that um, do not have Wi-Fi in the home and are uh, lower-income families. And then we uh, we ordered uh, $4 million worth of student computers uh, in July, and then we're just approving another $6.5 million uh, at our board meeting on Tuesday in student computers so that kids have access to a device. And I really want to encourage folks, if you have a device you're not using, or if you'd like to have one purchased in, in your name for a student who needs one, uh, you can go to the Education Alliance, and uh, they have all the information about that, and can uh, they are organizing that whole effort of getting devices for kids. So we're we're making a huge dent in that, but of course, it's a big backlog trying to get those computers acquired. Um, you know, supply chain issues all over the country trying to get computers for kids. So uh, tell me a little bit more about these teacher communities. That sounds like a um, a very good model, and are they assessing the children as to what they need to do with the amount of school that they lost in this last school year and kind of doing an assessment as to where they are individually? Absolutely. And that's a big part of the focus in our district. Um, it's about academic progress. Uh, it's not about a fixed point in time, but we want to take every child where they are and help them make progress, uh, significant academic achievement progress. And so, yes, assessment is a big part of it. Um, what happened last spring was a maintenance of effort, that we wanted to keep kids from losing ground but not have to have to introduce new material when uh, there wasn't a teacher, you know, in front of a, a classroom to, to uh, introduce that for kids. But this year, we are doing new content. We're doing grade-level content standards, essential standards for every single grade, for every single class. And that, just like in any year, uh, that means assessing where kids are and then helping them to grow from where they are uh, and, and get new material. Um, we have, right now, we have almost 20,000 kids whose families have elected to go to distance learning out of our 63,000. So uh, it's, it's a very, very important part of our educational delivery right now. And let me just say about teacher communities, um, before COVID, uh, one of the big efforts of our academic community in the school district was uh, learning about what we call professional learning communities. Uh, there is a ton of research that shows that the most impactful thing you can do 
to improve the uh, education and teacher quality in your school district is to build professional learning communities where teachers are working with one another and helping one another, whether it's their subject area or their grade level, uh, to work with others across lines. And of course, we do that digitally now. Uh, otherwise, we were doing it in person. But it's really advancing and elevating everybody's practice of teaching. And it's it's been very powerful. So now we've just moved it uh, virtual. So someone asked me, and I, I didn't have an answer, whether children would get report cards this year. They will get report cards. And it's still important for, um, as you said, the assessment process for teachers to know where kids are. What do they know? And, and, and am I, as the teacher delivering it in a way that kids are getting it? Um, are, they, are they understanding what I'm teaching? Uh, so mm-hmm. what, we, what we're working on doing is, is removing the pressure on teachers to have uh, student learning objectives be part of their performance evaluation. And we're act, we actually mm-hmm. have to go to the legislature to do that, and that's going to be our school district's bill draft request is to remove that pressure. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, but we still want to we still want to to give parents and kids an understanding uh, of of where they are because we all are accountable to help them build their educational skills. What we have changed is the attendance issues. Um, that, of course, previously chronic absenteeism was a big issue that we were trying to address. And we've realized we can't penalize anybody now for attendance issues. We're, we're certainly taking attendance, but we're not. Right. Uh, we've we've removed the obstacles that you know there will be huge consequences if you miss X number of days. So that's that's been removed. But um, we still want to check in with every student. Uh, we make sure that the family is being checked in with. Even over the summer, we had teachers, you know, doing porch visits to make sure that the kids mm-hmm. were able to get education. Mm-hmm. Big, big lift, well, heavy lift. <laughs> it's heavy lift. It sounds like though you're continually assessing the distance learning and is that assessment that includes teachers and parent input and administration? Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, like anything, some of our teachers are just superstars at learning through technology and others aren't. And so that's where the teacher communities are really helpful uh, to give people share lesson plans. And and here are some ways of communicating that particular content and teaching that content that worked for me and it might work for you. Uh, So yeah, those, that's a, that's a huge effort where um, we have uh, online support for teachers and we have online support for parents. We're also through our parent university um, trying to help work with parents to be able to support their child's distance learning. Uh, certainly, our English language learners uh, and uh, many of our families are just, you know, this is not in their wheelhouse, and right, we want to make right. sure that we're we're doing all we can to support them as well. Well, let's go back to the COVID issue. At um, what you were explaining a few minutes ago is that we we really have not had very many cases when you consider that there are 70,000 students and teachers in the school district. Um, and you have a process, obviously, 
that if a child is ill, if somebody thinks they have COVID, um, a process if they test positive for COVID. Um, so what what are the issues going forward on COVID and someone testing positive that the school board needs to uh, look at? Well, there's, there's obviously, um, we started school, uh, this is our third week of school. Of course, it, it wasn't five days a week because of our, our smoke days that we had to call. Uh, but um, we're going to be watching over the next couple of weeks. Now that kids are back in school, mm-hmm. uh, is that going to have an impact on uh, increasing transmission? So we're, we're carefully watching that. Uh, and, and we all have to remain very vigilant. Uh, the community has to remain very vigilant. I know it, we're, we're quite uh, aware now in the news lately about some of the issues with uh, socializing and parties at UNR. Um, it's a whole community that has to keep working on this to, uh, to keep our transmissions down. Um, so, you know, my, my plea and my request is that all of us continue to stay uh, very, very uh, disciplined about, you know, wearing the masks and washing hands mm-hmm. and social isolation. Because if we don't all do that, we could end up with kids not being able to come to school. And that just, you know, we don't want that to happen. We, we want all those kids who want to be there and all those teachers who want to be there to be able to come and to learn. Because we know that they, they learn best. They really do learn best when there's a teacher yeah, there do. with them. Yep. Yeah, clear up for us because um, I'm confused. I think a few other people are on what the Truckee Meadows COVID Threat Meter Task Force is. That's a mouthful. Um, And (laughs) it was in the Reno Gazette as being a task force that the school district will be, will you be participating in this task force? Can you explain that relationship a little bit? Sure. So uh, this was an idea that Mayor Sheevy had uh, to bring together some experts. um, And this is not a new approach for her. She has um, what she calls kitchen cabinets, you know, where she brings together experts Mm -hmm. to help advise her on things like mental health or whatever. So she, she invited some people to begin talking about, um, you know, what were some things we could do to, uh, to engage the community in, um, in managing this, all of us managing this virus. Uh, and she had uh, epidemiologists and infectious disease uh, specialists and experts, PhDs, physicians. And she also included a representative from the City of Sparks uh, Council, uh, a representative from the County Commission. So just, you know, these were people that she sort of engaged. Um, and we weren't aware of it. Uh, the school district didn't even know about it until about two weeks ago, uh, maybe three mm-hmm. weeks ago. Um, and one of the products that this task force was working on, it wasn't the only thing they were doing, but one of the products was uh, the mayor had a, a vision of a sort of a graph or a, you know, a speedometer that could be used just like we do in fire season uh, to show what the risk is. Uh, mm. You know, is it a high fire danger day like we hear about, you know, in the summers when there's um, red alerts? And she said, you know, could we do that with with risk of COVID transmission? So um, on his own time, 
and on his personal time, the uh, executive director of the uh, regional planning agency, Dr. Jeremy Smith, who's just a genius and a wonderful guy, volunteered to help build this threat meter based on the input from uh, these various experts, who include state officials and you know all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that has been developed and uh, is being launched publicly today in a press conference um, Mm. as a sort of a a way to, um, just as I said, just like the fire risk and others where, you know, you go, you you drive into a a forest area and in many places there's a dial, just like a speedometer that says the Mm. fire danger risk is very high today. Um, There are five metrics that are embedded in this um, in this system of of what the various threat is, and those are um, risk assessments that are being requested at the health department. So, so when somebody thinks they have symptoms, they go online and they uh, they check in with the health department to request getting a a test done, a, a COVID test done. So when we get a high frequency of risk assessments coming in, that's an early warning sign that, hmm, maybe maybe there are people who are exhibiting symptoms and they're going to be coming in for tests, and that's, a, that's an early indicator. Second indicator is the positivity rate. So what percentage of the tests that are taken are positive? The third indicator is our new cases per 100,000 population each day. And they take a seven-day average of those new cases, and, they, uh, and the positivity is a seven-day average as well. And then there are two other indicators. One is medical interventions due to COVID. So that's how many people have shown up at the doctor's office or in a hospital bed uh, or in an ICU bed uh, that are COVID-related. And then the fifth indicator is hospital capacity. So how close are we to being in our region. It's really a great, uh, great set of indicators. Uh, And so within each one of those, um, there are, um, there are points given every day for the data on that particular indicator. And then those points. Sorry. Who's putting the data into that? So the the data comes from, no, right now it's, uh, Dr. Jeremy Smith, the the data okay. comes from publicly available sources. So right. uh, the the only one that that isn't publicly reported is the risk assessments. How many risk assessments are requested? So the health department uh, reports that uh, data to Jeremy, and then so he he puts that into the system, and it mm-hmm. adds up to a number of points, and uh, and that number of points tells us what our potential threat or potential risk level is uh, in the community right now today. So for example, for the last several days, we've been at high risk, but not, we're not in the red zone, which is very high risk or the purple zone, Mm -hmm. which is severe. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, we are in high risk. We have generally a a higher number of cases on a seven day average than we want to see. Absolutely. Right. We're right. also we're also higher in positivity rates than we want to be. Um, the mm-hmm. World Health Organization says the positivity rate should be below five percent. Below five. Uh, yeah. When, yeah. 
Yeah, when you're above 5%, it means you're you you have community transmissions that are, you know, difficult to manage. Well, we're at 9%. Um, right, which is mu- right. much better than Las Vegas, but it's still, you know, we, we've got to keep an eye on that. So the way that the threat meter is hopefully going to work for the community is for us as a community to say, how do I need to change my behavior based on what this risk is that, that we're experiencing? Um, maybe I should go out a little less. Maybe I shouldn't go to uh, uh, you know, an in-person dining area, but maybe get takeout instead. You know, those kinds of decisions that we can make individually. Where the That's school fabulous. district, yeah, where mm-hmm. the school district came into it is that as we were planning for reopening, we also knew that we had a responsibility to be anticipating what might cause us to close and go to full distance learning, which Clark County is still in. They opened mm-hmm. with full distance learning for their you know, whatever there is, 300,000 kids uh, in their school district. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what, you know, what would cause us to do that? And we, you know, we've looked at the Harvard Global Health Institute and the World Health Organization and the governor's criteria and, you know, all these other systems. And we wanted to make sure we were, once we learned about this task force, uh, we said, well, gosh, we don't want to be going in a different direction. You know, if 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 we're saying this is, you know, such a horrible risk that we have to close schools, but the but the health experts who are who are guiding this process say, well, no, actually, you you can be in school. We we wanted to be aligned as a region. We're not going to use the threat meter to close schools. I want to be clear about that. But we are going to use it as a part of information. Um, you know, is is the risk in the community such that uh, businesses are likely to need to be closed, you know, et cetera. We don't want to prematurely close because we know it's very disruptive to the community, it's disruptive to children's education, but we also have a huge role in prevention and in stemming the spread. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, we will be looking at that threat meter. The other thing we look at, of course, is staffing. Um, we have to have enough healthy people uh, to operate our 109 right. schools. <laughs> so, right. uh, so those two things are going to be um, the basis. Probably, We're, the board will be looking at it. We we initially ad, uh, adopted some metrics on a preliminary basis to send them out for comment by public health officials because, of course, we aren't public health officials and we're not epidemiologists right. and we're not physicians. Uh, so mm-hmm. we sent those out for comment, and we've been learning a lot in the meantime, and we'll finish that discussion up on Tuesday, September 8th. Well, and as you said, there's a press conference today on this um, on this threat meter, and I'm sure people will find out then how they can how they can see it almost every day, so that the public can be informed. That was yeah. um, a great explanation of it, Katie, because I think we've had little bits and pieces about this uh, threat meter. But that was a great explanation as to how each one of us individually can use it for our own benefit and for the community. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Let's, um, and really, it, it is. I mean, we can impact it. That's the wonderful thing about this. Yeah. You know, we yeah. can impact it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about something else that's been in the news uh, quite a bit, but also in the news for the school district, and that's Black Lives Matter. I know there was a, an article saying that the 
teachers, I believe it was the teachers, couldn't wear uh, like a T-shirt with Black Lives Matter. or um, And I wanted just to clarify all of that because people have made some assumptions and they've read some things into it. Uh, can you explain to us what happened there and the policy that the school district has enacted? I can, uh, and um, we actually are um, are going to be coming back to that in September, and uh, the board will be adopting an anti-racism resolution that gives some very oh, – the board will, will be considering uh, – I can't say that the board will adopt it because I don't know what their votes are, but the board will have the opportunity to adopt uh, an anti-racism resolution that gives very specific – actions that the school district is taking, such as uh, curriculum development and making sure that uh, that people of color are well represented in terms of um, literature and history and um, and achievements uh, so that we you know we understand uh, better and are doing a better job of that uh, of that information being shared with kids and we've long had a, a, a goal at least as long as I've been on the school board of of increasing the representation of people of color uh, and other um, other underrepresented groups like veterans in our uh, in our staff and our teachers. Uh, what happened was that in the conversations to teachers about the upcoming school year, since it is a an election year, uh, uh, staff were reminded that uh, they can't participate in political activity. Uh, as teachers, uh, students can uh, say a lot more than teachers are allowed to say because a teacher has to has to provide a neutral environment. What we do encourage teachers to do is to have those conversations about why Black Lives Matter, to have those conversations about um, why uh, these protests are happening right now, and what what we can learn from them, and how people can. Uh, have civil discourse and and uh, and healthy conversation, but uh, and I I've had a lot of discussion. I just on my own personally just finished reading White Fragility, and I have some different perspectives than the district legal counsel's advice um, about uh, how this should be handled. So I you know I I am representing the district's point of view but it's not necessarily the point of view of myself or other uh, trustees. Um, but here's the rub. Here's the challenge. Uh, if teachers wear a Black Lives Matter shirt, which is not political activity, it, is, it has become a political issue, but it is not, it's not political activity because it's not saying you should vote for this or, you know, um, right, and that's the issue for me, and that's we're going to have a debate about that <laughs> at the board meeting. <laughs> um, but but uh, the the concern is that uh, when things are political issues, uh, you know, if we say a teacher can wear a, a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter, um, and another teacher wears a T-shirt that says, um, you know, abortion is murder, um, you know, it has to be applied universally. And right. uh, and those become very difficult uh, situations. I certainly think that um, it would be healthy for students and teachers 
if there were four days a year when students could and teachers could wear uh, issue-oriented messaging and have conversations about it. Let's learn to have conversations about, you know, how your belief is different from mine and why. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, And that, that may be something that comes out of our anti-racism uh, resolution. But uh, it was not about Black Lives Matter. It was about political speech and the the uh, person who was talking about it just used that as one example. There could be many other examples. They can't wear a T-shirt that says "Make America Great Again" either. They can't wear a T-shirt that says, you know, "Build Back Better for Joe Biden." Um, right. And that and and Black Lives Matter was just another example of what uh, our policy in the district says people uh, teachers are not allowed to do. <coughs> Pardon me, because they they need to have children focus on learning and not on the teacher's opinion. Right, and and you, that was a great explanation. I'm glad you cleared that up because I think uh, some people made assumptions that you just didn't want them the Black Lives Matter, but it's a far bigger issue than that. But you also brought up the issue of discourse and being able to talk about things, and certainly at learning at a younger age how to have conversations with people when your opinions are different is a essential uh, essential skill to have in this life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think the district uh, does appreciate that. Uh, and uh, I certainly, I know many teachers who do, and I've been uh, part of some conversations where, where that occurred. I, mm-hmm. I just had a, you know, I had a, I have a different view about this particular one, primarily because. Um, so, who gets to define what is political speech? Right. Uh, black right. Li- Black Lives Matter has become political speech because of the actions of white people, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I, I reminded uh, a colleague that uh, my mo- my grandmother. Uh, lived at a time when for much of her life she was not allowed to vote because mm-hmm. white men decided that uh, that she was not allowed to vote. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the folks that get to make the rules uh, sometimes make rules that aren't right. And uh, so I also said, um, so, so can a teacher wear a T-shirt that says uh, support our troops? Because for me, mm-hmm. or, or support our local police, uh, because for me, it's equivalent. We are we are honoring the lives of people who matter that not all groups support. And I said it does. Yeah. You know, to me, that's exactly the same thing. <laughs> it is, and supporting our troops has even become politicized in the last few days. Yes. I mean, there, there is. Yeah, we're in a time of politicizing almost everything, and uh, and that's a slippery slope. But that's a whole other podcast, I think. Yes, let me let me ask you about um you have a board meeting next week on September 8th. Will mm-hmm. will the issue of Scott Kelly be on at that board meeting in the sense of a replacement? Yes. So, uh we recognize that there's not a lot of his term left, but there is an absolute responsibility to the people of his district to be represented on the school board. Uh his district does overlap with with mine for part of it uh, and with uh, Jackie Calvert for part of it. 
but they they deserve to have the same representation that anybody else does. Every everybody mm-hmm. has two trustees that represent them, and they deserve representation. So this Tuesday we'll be approving the process for uh, making his replacement, and that will involve mm-hmm. an application process. Um, it will involve uh, finalists being uh, decided upon by the board. We hope to have the application period be very quick. Um, applications due by the 15th of September, and then we hope to have the appointment made at the September 22nd board meeting. So people who are interested should uh, watch the school district's website, uh, net. Yeah. Um, yeah, people can look at your, they can tune into your board meetings, every board meeting, right? Absolutely, anyway. and we are meeting in person, unlike other elected bodies oh. in the region now. We, we've we been meeting in person um, for the last two board meetings, and we do it on a socially distanced basis. We we will be meeting this uh, next Tuesday at Sparks High School. Uh, we met at, uh, at Damani Ranch, uh, and where else? I'm blanking on where else we met live. <laughs> all, the, all the high school auditoriums look the same, you know. Well, Katie, let me let me ask you because you've this has been a a four year journey for you, right? You're you're almost at the finish line. Uh, I mm-hmm. think your time is up at the end of this year, and what a year to have your last year. Um, certainly, lots of uh, lots of issues there for you. But tell me, has it been a gratifying experience for you? What will you remember the most as being on the school board? Well, I think we got um, a lot of really important things done that are not necessarily, um, you know, obvious to a lot of folks. Um, naturally, one of the things that um, that was a big deal for me was actually balancing the budget of the school district. Uh, the district had had deficits for the last 14 years, and we we got that thing balanced. Of course, now it's a whole new ball game with the uh, you know, with the shortages we'll have um, due to COVID. But um, we we developed a technology strategic plan. We've gotten, um, gosh, seven new schools constructed or underway. Um, we uh, we bid the healthcare business and we lowered our healthcare costs. We, um, for the first time in uh, about, I think, 14 years, we uh, got science textbooks updated. Um, you know, there have been lots of things. We uh, develop metrics for every objective in the strategic plan, and we report those publicly on a quarterly basis. Um, we reduced remediation rates. We have increased grade level proficiency and student performance. Um, so, you know, lots of things that um, that help the the district to be improved. We, you know, we increase teacher pay. Uh, we increase the graduation rate, um, so lots of things, but still lots of work to do, lots of work to do. Oh, and updated the SHARE curriculum at the high school level for the first time in, I think, 12 years. Uh, mm-hmm. So lots of things that were that were really important just to make the district um, deliver better for citizens and for students. Uh, and, of course, the transition to a new superintendent um, you know that was grueling for me personally, but we've um, we've gotten through it. Uh, so you know I'm I'm proud of the of the good work that we did, but we've 
certainly made a lot of mistakes. And um, I think we're, we learn from them and that's what we all Mm -hmm. have to do. You know, that's an example Mm -hmm. for, for our children. Okay. I, I didn't, I didn't do that one right, but I learned and now I'm going to do it differently and I'm going to get better and better and better. And so that's, that's been the best part of it. And of course, the hard part of it is that um, people are very opinionated and um, and have strong feelings about their children's education and about how things are, are done and how people are treated. And um, nobody hesitates to tell you exactly what they think <laughs> in all capital letters on an email. So, um, and of course, well, you know, and since, I, all of us, since all I of us personally, went to school, we're all experts. <laughs> Yeah, and I personally know the time commitment, Katie. The time commitment on the school board is uh, is enormous. Well, I I just uh, I have the utmost respect for uh, my colleagues who are elected school trustees all over the country. It is a very tough job, very tough yes. job. Yeah. And um and it's it's tough to have an impact because it's so complicated. It's you know it's really mm-hmm. complicated and of course in a district our size we're the we're the 58th largest school district in the United States and mm-hmm. you know we have a billion dollar budget I mean uh, mm-hmm. you know school construction and public finance and labor unions and uh, you know all of that overlaid on education and yeah. uh, and all of the challenges that we have with uh, with you know our our free and reduced lunch uh, population of kids is half of our district. Um, we are mm-hmm. a minority majority district. We have um, mm-hmm. you know English language learners. We have about a hundred languages uh, spoken at home by children in our school district. So lots of things that uh, make it hard for kids, but we want to do our best for them. Mm-hmm. Well, Katie, thank you. I know the time commitment that you put into this and your commitment to the children in our community. I remember when you first decided to run and your comment was, um, if I can do something to help, I'm willing to do it. And that was always your motivation. Well, I appreciate that, Sherry. And I think that's, you know, that's what all of us um, are about in public service. And you're certainly in the service world uh, yourself. It's, um, sort of like the, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and I, I must, must not fail to do the thing that I can do, uh, from Helen Keller, I believe. Well, and it's um, doing it even when you're rolling the boulder uphill. It's yeah. continuing to, to roll it, and, and you've really done that. I want to thank yeah. you, Katie, for always being willing to come on the podcast, because your information is concise, and it's clear, and Uh, I think it cuts right through some of the confusion that we all have. Today, we've really um, clarified some issues on distance learning, um, on the COVID-19 issue in the schools, um, on the task force, and we'll all be looking forward to looking at that meter um, almost on a daily basis. And thank you for coming on this podcast so many times. Well, thanks for the great work you and your staff do, uh, Sherry. You know I'm a huge fan and very grateful because <laughs> we do know that um, if we aren't healthy, none of the rest of it matters. So thank you for what you're doing, too. 
Well, you're welcome. We've been discussing Washoe County School District issues with Katie Simon Holland, a member of the Washoe County School District Board of Trustees. I want to thank you for listening, everyone, and please pass this podcast on to uh, parents and people in the community that you think might be interested in hearing some of the facts. For a list of our podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And please, everyone, be safe and wear your mask.